love staying up so late I love getting a good night's sleep I wanna hear some old hymns tonight I need to hear Christopher Wallace speak I could go for some food right now I could care less if we ever eat I sure love just sitting good. around All right, you ready? Some yeah! Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is episode 29. 29, we're getting there. It's good. And I have a very special guest with me today, Jess O'Reilly. Jess or Jessica? I like Jess. Jess, I thought so. That's what your your handle is. Everything is Jess. So just want to make sure. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go a whole episode calling you something that you didn't want to be called, right? So I think. Re-record. Re-record, yeah. that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about we do this all over again and um, get it right this time, yo-ho. Anyway, okay, good. Jess, tell us about yourself. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, thanks. So I'm uh, located in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada, oh. where we're experiencing some really amazing weather right now. All kinds of black flies and mosquitoes and yep. zero active cases of COVID. So, you know, ah. all things considered, we're, we're all right. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Uh, good. So you are at Cambridge? No. Cambrian what? College. Cambrian. Cambridge. Wouldn't we all like to be at Cambridge? Um, yeah. Not, Cam- not quite there yet, but maybe we're the Cambridge <laughs> of the North. Yeah, hey. it's, a, it's an applied tech uh, trades college. Oh, in, uh, okay. Sudbury. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, I knew that I should. Yeah, I knew that. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you do there. Sure. So my role's actually recently changed. I yeah. started out at Cambrian about five years ago. I was hired as, um, their first actually official instructional designer in a support staff role. Did that for a few years. Um, the teaching and learning center there was changing and growing at the time. So they actually posted a professor position at about three years ago now, I'd say. And they called that role instructional developer. Uh, basically, it was the um, pedagogical leadership that front loads instructional design projects. And it was thought at the time that a professor role might be most appropriate for that kind of support. So I was fortunate enough to uh, successfully apply to that role. Um, just in time for a five-week-long faculty strike. Uh, so that, that was an interesting professional <laughs> moment for sure. Um, right. Did that for about three years and then just recently transitioned, like I'm talking two weeks ago, yeah. into a new role. I'm no longer with the Teaching and Learning Innovation Hub at Cambrian, but I, I've started coordinating three programs within the General Studies mm-hmm. Department of Cambrian College. So I'm still in the, the building, virtual or yeah. otherwise, right. uh, but my, my focus of my work has shifted a little bit more to the teaching uh, curriculum and support in respect to those three programs. Very cool. So what you said, it's a, it's a, trade and technical institution. Applied um, arts and technologies, I think is the oh. official uh, title, but yeah, a lot of applied learning trades, health sciences, um, mm-hmm. and then as, as well as programs like mine that are more the general studies or social sciences type focus. Okay. Have you had any interactions with trades faculty in, in your institution? Oh, sure. Uh, Plenty, actually. Um, I mean, I teach many general education courses, so oftentimes I'm teaching entire cohorts of trade students or a mix of, you know, students coming from all different 
uh, programs, including the trades. And then in the Teaching and Learning Innovation Hub, we've got faculty coming in from all corners of the college, including the trades. Some are our frequent flyers, you know, so I've got stronger connections with some than others. And then I've also this year um, stepped into the role of a union steward. So in that context, I also get to meet and just discuss uh, different college uh, affairs with folks from all, all corners of the college as well. So I've been pretty lucky in that respect that I, I get to communicate with a nice cross-section of folks. I've never really been tucked into one little corner of the, uh, of the institution. So uh, it really does help. You know, it helps my teaching and uh, also just helps me to see the different um, circumstances or, you know, problems of practice that come up in different contexts because we're pretty diverse in our offerings. So when you say in your teaching, what do you teach? Uh, lately, I've been teaching a relatively new course called Truth and Reconciliation. So that course um, focuses specifically on the history of residential schooling in Canada, kind of positioned within a broader co settler colonial context, and then also focuses on more contemporary actions toward reconciliation, restitution, uh, restoration. So it's a, been a really powerful learning journey for me. Um, and it's something that I'll continue doing. It's kind of been my, my love child when it comes to teaching uh, in the past few, few years. But then I also teach writing, communications, uh, critical thinking type courses as well. Oh, I like that. So the, the, um, the Indigenous lens is a good lens now. I wouldn't say it's a hot button topic lens anymore. I, th I think it's getting more, more exposure, which is awesome. What's what's the student body like when they come in your class? Are they taking it uh, for interest? Are they taking it because they have to? Like, and, and kind of what's their assumptions when they walk in as opposed to when they walk out? Oh, sure. That's such a good question. Um, it's, it's a real cross-section, like any general education course. So some students are enrolling with intention. I've got uh, representation within, you know, various Indigenous communities uh, in terms of student population, um, non-Indigenous Canadian students, international students. And so there's a real wide-ranging demographic of learner that, that comes into the course. Some are there because uh, they really do want to learn about their own family's history. Uh, you know, I'll often have students tell me, oh, uh, my grandma or my uncle was enrolled, you know, or uh, absconded to the residential schools, but we really don't talk about that too much. But then I also have international students that tell me quite honestly, like, oh, I just picked it off, uh, you know, a list of course titles. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm in for. And so that's Buckle kind up. of important. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I try to frame it pretty carefully for them so that they know what they're getting into. Yeah. And actually this semester, I was able to open up the course outline and do some revisions. And I tried to really strengthen the description of the course to, to help students see um, that the content they'll encounter is, you know, it, it can be incredibly um, emotionally affecting. And, oh, yeah. and that's the point. I'm not going to yeah. distill down a, a, an important history, mm -hmm. but I do want students to know that what they're signing up for to some extent and mm -hmm. make sure that they're, you know, emotionally, spiritually ready to take on that that learning because mm -hmm. it is quite personal. You know, even the designing of the course has been such a personal learning journey for me. Yeah. Um, 
I got interested in, in getting involved in teaching truth and wrath after a critical digital pedagogy lab. Uh, so, you know, that, that pedagogy, that thing, <laughs> I'm running into that more and more often that people go, you know, I took that digital pedagogy lab and it changed my life. It, it was a it was a crossroads moment for me. That's for sure. And, you know, I went to the lab. It, it was in Toronto, which is rare to have it so oh, close to yeah, home yeah. for us. Right. So yeah. I, I seized the opportunity and I was able to get some funding, uh, thankfully. And, and I, I got down there and I had signed up for it. The stream was inclusive design. Mm -hmm. But what the conversation turned into quite quickly and, and that was sustained through the three days was a conversation about reconciliation in Canada mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the ongoing systemic and, uh, you know, just individual barriers that that Indigenous peoples are encountering specifically within higher ed, because okay. uh, most of us there were, were higher education professionals in, in one role or another. Sure. And so uh, driving home, I mean, from Toronto to Sudbury, we're talking about a three and a half, four hour drive at that time of year. Oh. And that, and uh, I just thought like, you know what, this for me seems like a call, a call to leverage my privilege to, to get involved in some meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Shortly after that, my great grandmother passed away. Uh, we called her Nanny. Okay. So Nanny passed away. She was in her 90th year and she uh, was the oldest child of two Algonquin uh, First Nation parents, but we oh, really, really didn't talk too much about her, her indigenous background. And she, you know, at her, her funeral, it was a Catholic mass and there yeah. wasn't really any, any even like echo of her indigenous background. And, you know, I think huh. just the, the timing of both kind of had me reflecting on how these histories and stories they, they disappear because yeah. they live in people and people aren't with us forever. And anyway, all that to say, it really did motivate me to one, connect with my own Algonquin heritage in a mm -hmm. more meaningful way mm -hmm. before it's too late, you know, before yeah. those elders are gone and, and their stories gone with them. Uh, and then also to think about as someone with mixed, you know, settler and indigenous heritage, what could I do? Mm -hmm. How could I help? You know, what actions could I take so that the, the feeling that I left Digped with could become something central to my practice. And, and the answer for me as someone who kind of, you know, skirts both worlds, um, wasn't to try to, you know, step into the role of, of, of an, an expert in terms of culture or ceremony mm -hmm. or language. It's not me. I, I'm, I'm, you know, very early on, on my path, but I could take on, you know, Canada's colonial history and the okay. harms uh, that, that have ensued from that history and are ongoing today. And so I, I met with my dean almost immediately after I, I got back to the office and I said, I've got this idea. Um, would you let me take this on? And they were very supportive. And wow. yeah, the rest is history. So I've been teaching it for several semesters now. Um, and it's been a really profound experience mm. to, to see students go through that learning journey. You know, it, it's... Yeah. Uh, very emotional work for sure. And oh. ask a lot of them. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine. I mean, it, well, I got so many questions. I don't know if we have enough time. Hmm. How does it, how does it feel teaching that, that kind of content when you have indigenous students in your class? Like that's gotta, 
like for me, that would feel like, am I even worthy to do this? Like, who am I? Like, yeah, it, it, it is a, it raises those existential questions for sure, but it also kind of speaks to some assumptions that we might make about sure. our students, right? Yeah. So I was fearful at first, and, and the first time I taught the semester, I, I told my students that a few weeks in. I said, um, you know, I, I'm really grateful to you for, for trusting me enough to, to take this journey with mm-hmm. me. Um, the Indigenous students in, in that first cohort tended not to know too much of the history. Mm. Um, in, in subsequent cohorts, I have had students who are very knowledgeable and mm-hmm. I try to keep an open channel of communication there because I don't want them to feel pressured to become the knowledge keeper in this context, right? right? right. Like, um, you know, if, if I have a student who steps in to correct another student in a discussion forum or something, mm-hmm. I think that's amazing leadership, mm-hmm. but I'll reach out to that person offline and just say, um, you know, I, I completely respect and honor what you're doing, but I also want you to know that you don't have to. If you don't want to be that person for this right. student, that's, that can be my role. Um, and feel free if you don't have the energy, um, you know, you can reach out to me to ask for remediation on, on your behalf. Or, you know, so we just kind of talk it out. More common in my experience are students who, like me, have mixed ancestry, mm-hmm. um, haven't really been comfortable disclosing because there's a lot of, you know, difficult identity politics that come up. Are you status? Are you not? Are you on community? Are you not? Um, mm-hmm. But because I, I kind of am open and honest, explicit about my subjectivity, I find that they tend to do the same. And so we get into some meaningful conversations about like, if I wanted to learn more, where might I start? Like, what did you do? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's very positive as well. Um, And then for for our international students, you know, they've been in, in speaking generally, I suppose, but generally speaking, they've been painted a picture of Canada that doesn't include this part, right, at all. Um, And so helping them navigate this new alternate narrative when when they've been really promised a picture of this country and and have uprooted their entire lives and paid so much to get here Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's a unique challenge as well right yeah Um, but there are parallels to be drawn and and that's something i encourage with students who aren't from this country is you know think about the various systems of oppression that might have operated at home for you and, and, and make those connections. It's okay yeah. to draw those parallels. They're important. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very uh, affect laden teaching. It, yeah. It's not just a dry history course, right? It can't be, that's not, that's not the point. Right. Um, so, and, and primarily I teach these courses fully online, which is oh. a whole other kind of context, right? Wow. That brings but, in a whole new layer to this whole thing. That's right. But to be honest, I wouldn't have it any other way because I don't think, for example, um, this previous winter semester, I had a student tell me, uh, trades guy, okay. uh, ca- Caucasian, mm-hmm. has a, a close friend who is Indigenous, and he told me in detail about 
just a really heartfelt conversation that they had that ended in tears and hugs. And it was just very raw. And, and for him to share that with me, yeah. um, I'm not sure if he would, if he knew he had to look me in the eye in person next class. Well, I guarantee you, he probably wouldn't have. Right. Guarantee so yeah. that, that space, I think, does lend itself to some extent well um, for some vulnerability and really mm-hmm. deep sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't force it, obviously, but if students want to go there, I'll, I'll, I'll meet them. I'll meet them yeah. halfway. Yeah. And uh, I think that further, you know, even the in a face-to-face classroom or synchronous online classroom setting, I, I wonder if the conversations would be productive all the time or mm-hmm. if there would be maybe some you know, just off the cuff remarks that come in and cause harm, whether intended or not. I feel like I can curate the environment a little bit more carefully, asynchronously. That might be my own control issues to some extent. (laughs) Uh, But so far it has worked well when it, when it's framed as a very personal type learning journey. Wow. Uh, That's so awesome. So what, (laughs) I guess I got all these questions are in my head. Does the, does the Algonquin community know that you're doing uh, this, this course and what kind of interaction have you had with them and, and what kind of, like, what, what's the conduit there look like? That's an interesting question. I mean, um, this history is a pan-Canadian history, right? Okay. Um, so in terms of the greater Golden Lake First Nation, I've connected with them more for my own personal um, learning when it comes to my family history and mm-hmm. language acquisition and, and that cultural type piece. But in Sudbury, we're actually situated on a different territory. Okay. Um, the Algonquin Nation tends to be uh, further east from us and goes all the way up into into Quebec, okay. where here in Sudbury, we're looking more... Um, even like language, regional language is different. So our elders on campus tend to teach Ojibwe rather than Algonquin. Okay. Um, you know, we're, we're situated on the lands of the Atingmishing Anishinaabeg First Nation. We're close to Wanapate and French River First Nations. Okay. And so the connection locally is actually more to those particular uh, mm-hmm. First Nations as opposed to Algonquin. That said, though, just coincidentally, there are several Algonquin peoples who are employed at and who I work closely with at Cambrian, oh. um, not by design, but it, yeah. it's just a bit of serendipity that I can connect with and, you know, just make sure that I've got my my own little community of practice supporting me. Right. Uh, in, in almost informal ways, you know, like sure. I'll, I'll run something by another educator or our new director of our Wabnode uh, Indigenous Services also mm-hmm. happens to be Algonquin. Okay. Um, so it's interesting when you talk community because uh, particularly the, the Algonquins as a semi-nomadic, um, you know, group of peoples, we're spread out mm-hmm. and it there's more living off than on reserve now mm. for sure. Okay. Um, you know, and as, as time goes on and, um, you know, people mix that, that, mm-hmm. that community is so dispersed, but the cool thing is we've got the internet now. So there's actually <laughs> yeah, some great right. ways to connect. The goo comes in handy, doesn't it? Big time, big time. Wow. That's amazing. I love that. That's so cool. Ah. Oh. Okay. So your new role as program coordinator, um, what, what made you think that this was a, a, a 
switch for you, a positive switch? Like what, what, what happened? Like what, what drew you to that area of education? Well, you know, it just sort of happened. It, it's interesting <laughs> how your, your path just sort of unfolds in front of you. And yep. I, I'm the type of person to think that, um, you know, if I'm being called to do something in a particular moment of time, it's probably for a reason. Mm-hmm. So my, my difficulty is saying no. I'm, I'm uh, kind of a yes person. And so I, I right? <laughs> yeah. Podcasters <laughs> tend to be um, part of that club for sure. Yeah. So uh, I, I was told that my, my um, time at the hub had come to an end and, you know, in light of all things going on COVID wise, I, I was needed in the classroom as someone who's pretty adept at asynchronous online teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted all hands on deck for the for the fall and that made sense to me. So I had just sort of started getting my my mind around full-time teaching mm-hmm. and, and tucking into teaching and then also finishing up my uh, doctoral studies for mm-hmm. next year. And the very first day that I officially became part of my my new school, um, my chair reached out and asked if I wanted to take on this coordinator role. Okay. So it wasn't something that I, I had anticipated in any way. Um, she had received some additional funding for programs, two of which have been running, but we've got a new, uh, it's a general arts and science indigenous specialization certificate, really intended almost as a bridge. So okay. if, if you're uh, a student who maybe has a grade 12 workplace level English math course, uh, you're living in a far northern community, but you're interested in post-secondary studies. This particular program can offer a supportive bridge into into uh, academic okay. programming. Okay. It's culturally informed. It's land-based. It really is meant to support students right. uh, for whom that transition can be really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that really appealed to me for obvious reasons. And so I said, "Cool, sign me up. Let's nice. let's do it." So. <laughs> yeah, that's how that happened. That's awesome. What's the accessibility like? So if, if some of these students are, I'm, I'm assuming that they're going to be remote learning, right? Um, so what's the accessibility like and, and how do you get students through a, a, a asynchronous program? Well, th- that's the big challenge. I mean, shared across all programs, sure. all institutions right now. Um, Cambrian made the decision to delay enrollment for this Indigenous specialization program until mm-hmm. winter. Hopefully that that time buffer will will allow us to, you know, we really wanted to start the program off the way it was intended. And mm-hmm. it's very difficult to do land-based, culturally sensitive programming um, from a distance, particularly when many of these communities just simply lack the infrastructure to, yeah. to connect. Yeah. Um, so we, we created that time buffer and hopefully that will help. That said, though, that, I mean, in, in our academic programming, there's all kinds of delivery modes, mm-hmm. you know, even in typical circumstances. So a big part of that support is going to be helping students make that transition to hybrid or fully online learning. Right. Um, and that's kind of not a COVID specific challenge. That's that's post-secondary learning. Yeah. Broad, you know, broadly speaking. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned a doctorate. How yeah. far along are you? <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm all but dissertation. <laughs> oh, you're close. <laughs> the infamous. Yeah, well, close, close. What is the saying? Close is only good in horseshoes. That's true. Um, 
So I'm through the coursework. I'm about three years in. It's a doctorate of distance education um, at Athabasca. Coursework was amazing. Yeah. I mean, but I, I've done a couple grad degrees now. I'm kind of like one of those people that can't stop <laughs> going back. Um, oh. So, so I was confident in my ability to achieve the the coursework stuff. Sure. This this whole dissertation that's a that's a different ballgame, I think. Um, I've heard that that dissertations can can wring the life out of people. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just it extends the timeline at, at the oh, very least. Exactly. So you, you, you you've been to grad school twice. Yeah, I actually um, I did a, a master's in literatures of modernity <laughs> at Ryerson. What? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That That's basically <laughs> yeah. what I said for the full year I, I was in the program. Um, it was cool. It's yeah. like a master's in English lit basically, but it was really set, um, contextualized in the okay. city and modern urban environments. Really amazing, uh, profs in that program, big thinkers shaped mm -hmm. my worldview, like would never have, uh, you know, want to do that, that, uh, make that choice differently, I guess is what I'm saying. It was a great time. But so in, in my view as a 20 something, I thought I was going to go straight through, get a PhD in English lit right. and, uh, you know, preach Virginia Woolf to whoever would listen to me. <laughs> with this. Come on, let's go. Yeah. But, but then, uh, part of the funding mechanism for that program was, uh, you could do a teaching assistant role and they oh. just sort of fling you in front of these sure. millennials. I had no idea what I was doing. And I thought, <laughs> wow, teaching, like it was something I'd always resisted as a career path. Mm -hmm. Cause it just seemed like this assumption built in. If you're studying English lit, I guess you're going to be a teacher. Cause what the right. heck else will you do with that degree? Yeah. Um, but then when I realized how difficult, but fascinating and rewarding mm -hmm. that kind of teaching was, I thought I, I need to learn more about this. So I, uh, enrolled in a B.Ed. and then an M.Ed. Um, teaching jobs were really scarce at the time. So I right. thought, I'll just keep upskilling, you know, I'm just going to try <laughs> to keep going to school. Somewhere. <laughs> Maybe someone will hire me someday. <laughs> um, so I did my master's in ed with a focus on curriculum and adult learning okay. and uh, also a little bit of instructional design. Like that's where I, I started dabbling in ed mm -hmm. tech and, and learning object design and stuff like that. Um, so it did kind of lead me on this path. You know, I thought that we're talking around 2010, 2011, um, online learning was really booming, even though, sure. you know, the actual full-time teaching gigs were scarce. Those, that kind of like gig economy w mm -hmm. was growing and thriving. So I thought if that's the, the approach I take, um, that might be something that can sustain me through my, my professional career. Couldn't have anticipated this, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you anticipated this, then uh, maybe maybe let's talk about investing, right? But uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's like got, me wishing I had some Zoom stock investments in early oh, no March. No kidding, like, right? No, yikes! Like nine hundred times the amount of people that like in a month and a half. Like, yeah. oi, oi, oi. Yeah, I mean, it's not good in one sense because you know because of the situation, but on the other hand, it's like. Huh? Right. Exactly. Everyone's it's vying just, for the same time. And it's like, how come my zoom doesn't work much like it used to? Oh, I don't know. Could be because, you know, 300 million people are on it at the same time. Exactly. Go figure. 
Yeah, Zoom was not a verb a couple of months ago, but it, it's become one. Yeah. I don't know if it's a pejorative or not, but, you know. It's, it's a swear word. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. So, uh, Athabasca and courses were good. Yeah. And I'm courses asking because I'm, I'm kind of toying with, do I go get a PhD or an ed doc? Do I even go at all? Do I go get another master's? Not, I mean, oh. I'm, I'm an old guy, so I don't have time on my side, but. Um, well, you know, it was interesting. I mean, I, first of all, you're asking the wrong person. I'll say go for it because I, I just collect <laughs> degrees like I do like sneakers. It's it's a sickness at this point. This is it. Like I'm saying, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is it. I'll do some MOOCs. I'll, sure. You know, I'm going to engage with some some teachings from elders, but the formal credentialed, I'm done after this. Nice. You could quote me, okay. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it's been a wonderful experience. And actually, I hadn't had any exposure to open education before I started okay. in my ed at Athabasca. And I mean, what again? A, a pivotal moment that's been in terms of my my pedagogy, my my approach to teaching, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. even the professional learning communities that I've connected with are just incredibly rich mm-hmm. and and all of that really was was catalyzed by by Athabasca and their commitment to open so the 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 research pitch that i entered the program with is completely different than the actual doctoral research i'm proposing to undertake um but th- that's kind of normal you know they expect okay. that to some extent and so I uh, found my way to a really wonderful supervisor. I've got Diane Conrad supervising my uh, doctoral study. And I also um, applied for a fellowship, a research fellowship through the Open Ed Group. Oh. And was accepted last year. Okay. So I, I'm well supported. Uh, also the Global Graduate Network, right. uh, GoGN. You know, so in terms of open education, there's a lot of support out there. And, mm-hmm. and what's cool is it's a very globalized, you know, uh, network of support. So you've got, you know, pockets from around the world contributing to this conversation. So I'm looking to research a specific instance of OER-enabled pedagogy okay. uh, and students' perceptions of this, this particular instance. It's actually the final project in my Truth and Rec course. Um, so oh. what I started doing was I started, like, we get through the history and, and you know, we, we got to go through what happened to get mm-hmm. to our current state. And so we start looking at the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions of uh, Commission of Canada's 94 calls to action okay. later in the semester. And this this particular project invites students to examine one call in mm-hmm. detail. Mm-hmm kind of look at um, what the progress to date is mm-hmm. or lack thereof, right? right? What are some of the um, pre-existing conditions that led to this call even being necessary? So that's where they bring in their, their learning from the course. Mm-hmm. But then I wanted to bring in a little bit of positive because this course is heavy. Sure. Um, and I don't want students leaving thinking that First Nation, Métis, Inuit people in this country are, are naturally always positioned in a, in a victim-type narrative. Mm-hmm. So, so I wanted to flip that on its head and really focus on empowerment and positive action. So as a component of their project, the student finds one person, organization, initiative that mm-hmm. is um, in some way 
moving the call to action forward. So like find some good work and celebrate it. And they're invited optionally always uh, to contribute that project to a public facing website. And they choose an open license. They choose whether or not they want to be anonymous or, you know, post under a pseudonym uh, or use their name. They can go non-commercial or, you know, what, there's yeah. choice built into, built into the assignment. And so my doctoral research is, is aiming to really, in a very ideographic way, ask students how they felt about that particular mm-hmm. assignment. And, uh, you know, I just want to make sure before I go full bore with these types of practices that I'm not unintentionally silencing or harming, marginalizing students. And, and I can't really know that for sure until I ask them, right? Right. Um, and so that's what the research is aiming to do. But I mean, just anecdotally, students have found value, I think, in, in the invitation. Not that mm-hmm. they all take me up on it. They don't. But um, the, the, the echo that I hear across semesters and across student groups is like, why didn't I learn about this? Why didn't yeah. anyone tell me? And so this is my way of saying, well, you can, you're, you've learned now. You have a story to share. You have a voice. Sure. Um, why don't we kind of, not to be cliche, but be the change, right? And yeah. so the website is actually geared as a resource for um, later year, like I'm thinking grades 7 through 12 mm-hmm. high school educators to be able to point their students to. And um, it's part of my longer term plan to really try to make some meaningful connections and see if that maybe assignment can evolve such that high school students and college level learners can be in dialogue with each other. For sure. As they learn about the calls. So, yeah. So is that, is that website uh, up and running? Like, could, could I go and look at it? You totally could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I called the website, uh, we kind of went through a bit of a naming process the first time I, I ran the course and we landed on Nabuajige, which okay. is an Algonquin word. Um, it's often used to mean like read or to read, mm-hmm. but really if, if, if you look at the direct translation, it means to examine carefully, like you would when you read a book, right? Sure. But, but in this context, obviously that's a bit of a metaphor of what we've been doing in the course and uh, how students are invited and empowered to examine progress related to the calls to action carefully and also share their own perspectives and voice. Okay. So it's not your typical research project, but students tell me that they like the flexibility. Um, I've also, it's not like an essay only type format. I've had students do podcasts, videos, lots of presentations. Okay. Some are writers, they want to write, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So the, the mode in terms of how they communicate their learning, it's totally up to them. Okay. But I template it out to some extent, so they're not at a loss for what I'm looking for. And there's some consistency between each post as well. That's so cool. Do you find that there's a parallel between what you do for the open world and I call it the open stance and what you're doing, learning about the indigenous uh, stuff that you're going through? Like do you, in regards to openness and sharing a lot of it being relational, um, do you find any parallels to those? Cause I'm, I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm seeing something differently, but I, I, I wonder if there's a parallel in there. Oh, I, I definitely see it. I mean, I think that these past few years have really shown me that the, 
the thing that I care about is this cross section of mm-hmm. um, student empowerment and voice, yeah. bringing the, the truth part of, of truth and reconciliation forward and doing so in a way that is transparent and honest in terms of my own pedagogy. Mm-hmm. But, but there are parts, I mean, I, I think engaging with my indigenous background has helped me add a, la- a layer of criticality to my engagement with open education okay. that maybe wasn't there before. Um, makes me think, for example, about uh, which stories are open and which right. maybe aren't, right? right. Um, especially the the Indigenous educators who have come into my circle and have been my, my leaders in this. The conversations I have with them sometimes do entail like what what knowledge is, is safe is not the right word, but appropriate maybe for sharing. Uh, is um, is the listener, you know, coming to this this dialogue from a place of respect? Right. Um, if so, then maybe, like I'm thinking of a particular educator who uh, found her way back to her Algonquin culture through drumming, and so mm-hmm. drumming is very sacred and special for her. And she had intended to bring her drum into class one day. She teaches face to face, and and do a bit of a, a ceremony with her students, but a few of them just weren't conveying the level of respect that she needed to to feel like that okay. teaching would have been received in a good way. And so she decided maybe that that wasn't the right choice for her in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's conversations and, and considerations like that, that I think are essential. Um, and particularly when it comes to, to cultural practices, ceremonial practices, elder voices, you got to be really careful. Um, and, and make sure that you're doing the sharing in a good way, in a way that would be supported by the communities represented, um, and you're not just going rogue. Now, the, the right. nice thing in some aspects when it comes to truth and reconciliation is there has been some really great work done. And so when I was building this course, there was no shortage of like, quote unquote, content uh, to curate in. Um, These stories have been told and shared. um, So I didn't have to, for example, reach out to a survivor to share their story. Those Mm -hmm. stories are out there now and it's time for us to to listen. So it's, um, yeah, it's a little bit of a different context, I think, for me someone teaching a more like historical uh, contemporary course as opposed to a cultural one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's the right questions to be asking, I'd say. Yeah. It's, um, I'm always, I'm always impressed and uh, impressed in a, in a bunch of different ways. And, and I'll give you a short example. It's not indigenous related so much, but my family and I a long time ago did a walk around tour of Maple Ridge. I don't know if you're Maple Ridge is like a, uh, uh, it's about 45 minutes out of Vancouver. So I don't know if you know the layout. So it would be like Vancouver, Burnaby, Coquitlam area, Tri-Cities, Pitt Meadows, Maple Ridge, Mission, that kind of stuff, right? Um, so we did this walk around tour with our, when our kids were younger just to kind of get the flavor of the town. We've been here 20 years, but anyway. Um, we go to the museum and there's stories there of immigrants from other countries and we're talking like 110 years ago like like people from india and you know there were some people from china which you know we've heard a lot about but there would be like people from japan right and and i'm like what 
what? Like you never hear about this, right? Mm-hmm. And especially in World War One, and then in, <clears throat> pardon me, in World War Two, when it came, like the government just come in and just grab people and just hauled them away. Like just literally went into their house, grabbed them, took them out, and took them to uh, essentially a prison camp. I like they've been here for like two generations already, and you're what? Yeah. And I'm I'm. I'm mad. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm embarrassed. Right. And, and I'm like, what? And then, you know, all the stuff about residential schools and, and, and I'm just like, ah, shaking my head right now for those people that can't see me, but it's like, ah, I like, I don't know. It just, it, it becomes very weighty, doesn't it? Like you've said it a few times, like it's, it's deep, it's weighty. And I liked how you, how you said, you know, it, it's a, it's an emotional and spiritual journey too. It's not just an intellectual or scholastic or, well, I'm sure those pieces are in there, but man. Yeah. They, I mean, my students respond so differently to the sort of textbook clinical write-up of sure. certain events as opposed to, you know, a person who vividly remembers the day their children yeah. were taken away. Oh. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's important too, to think about authority in terms of the sources that we incorporate, yeah. you know, a course like mine really challenges that, that status quo, which is academic sources only need apply type thing, because yeah. that only paints a very narrow biased, um, version of events. Mm-hmm. So it, it's been really interesting to to curate and, and try to get these multiple perspectives and also have students leave the course with a sense of not every single person's experience was the same. Like right. yeah. it's okay to, uh, you know, tolerate a degree of variety in mm-hmm. these, in these narratives. They're all valid. Um, but we can also make some general conclusions about the harms that happened yeah. across the system. Even if a survivor might say, you know what, I, I remember having a, a fairly positive experience. It was still an overt act of, of colonization. And, sure. um, you know, that the purpose was to really strip those, those students of, of their culture, their family connection, their language, their connection to land and, um, you know, and replace it with, a version uh, that was deemed to be superior, this yeah. Eurocentric view. And I, it, it, it is heavy, but it's important. And, and, you know, I remember going through school, maybe there was like a little chapter in one textbook. Yep. It, didn't, it didn't sink in for me as a young person. Mm-hmm. Uh, what this can, this this country's history truly entails, and to hear my students echoing that today is is frankly it's a travesty, right? And if, oh. if I can help, I mean, so far I've taught maybe let's say 150 to 200 students yeah. through this course. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something that I can feel good about as an educator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't want to just wallop them without support, you know? Um, so it, it does change the conversation. Like I'm not micro editing your, your spelling, grammar or yeah, APA, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I am going to be inquiring into how, how you're doing and yeah. in a holistic kind of way, yeah. um, which is tough as an educator. Cause I don't have a psychology background. I'm not a counselor by you know, um, if a student comes to me and says, I- I'm struggling emotionally, 
I do have to figure out how to be equipped to, to have those conversations and direct to the right supports. And yep. that was something I knew I was taking on in the teaching of this course. And, you know, it's something that I think some might uh, like shy away from. You feel like, well, I'm not the right person or what happens if, and there's a lot of fear that goes into it. But I think uh, what DigPed kind of left me with is uh, it, it, that's not a good enough reason for me personally to do nothing. Uh, I see that digped. That's all comes back to the digped people. Got to yep. get to digped. Oh <laughs> man. Are you ever going to go back to digped? You think? Maybe. Yeah. Oh. I'd love to someday for sure. Uh, the nice thing about that community is they, they are to some degree quite open. Mm-hmm. So you can still engage, right? Even if you're not necessarily at their, uh, their big culminating PD event every year. So sure. I definitely continue to follow them and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Hey, maybe one day I'll like facilitate a workshop. That could be a real big goal for uh-huh. me. That would be cool. That would be cool. I'd sign up. I'd be there. Oh, cool, man. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Life goals. What's give me that? another five. I said life goals. <laughs> give me another five or 10. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get that doctorate done first and then, exactly. uh, then you can move forward. Oh my goodness. Um, so Outside of your your journey uh, through the Indigenous piece that you're doing at work and, and even in your own personal life, what have you changed your mind on recently? And, and it could be COVID, it could be higher ed, dealing with COVID. Like, what have you found that you've said, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm changing my mind? Hmm. You know, it's been such a whirlwind, huh? Yeah. Um, every week was like a new adventure and... Sometimes I didn't know if I was coming or going or what was happening. But, um, you know, I think coming out of this period in terms of teaching practice and as someone who is very kind of tech enabled in my teaching and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I didn't have to go through that that stress and and the learning curve involved with transitioning to asynchronous online because that tends to be the place I teach from. So I was fortunate in that respect. Um, but I also was able to to support my colleagues in meaningful ways and really see the hard work that they were doing to to make it happen. You know, teachers can really be criticized heavily by many of the the different players involved in education. But what I see is a real deep commitment and, um, you know, an ethos of care directed at students. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that care manifests in different ways. You know, my colleagues and I have different perspectives on um, you know, for example, the level of support students should have to submit late assignments, right? right. Like they're always yep. going to have different perspectives and that's fine. But as a rule, we've been working hard to make it work. And, and mm-hmm. um, that same commitment is carrying through to the fall, which has been just really inspiring. But for me, as someone who's been an online student forever and teaches online and kind of lives in one LMS or another, uh, I'm just so sick of discussion forums. I've been sick oh. of those things for years. I'm okay. oh, I, like the, the, the formula that I see in most online courses is like read the thing post a, 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 a some sort of response to the thing and then reply to three other people's responses. Right. And that's like the, the um, boilerplate design choice that's made throughout uh, most of the online courses I've sure. been a student in. I counted sure. last semester, uh, sorry, fall semester, I had, I think, 32 separate discussion forums in my last ed 
course. Mm. Like that's probably 32 too many in my opinion. <laughs> um, but so uh, circling yeah. back to your, your question, um, when we had to make the quick switch to online and we started having questions about, you know, what devices do students have access to? What sort of bandwidth and, and you know, Wi-Fi or data do they have access to? I quickly kind of started to see how the discussion forum can be that safe common denominator for everyone. Sure. Like you don't need a fancy gadget to be able to contribute. You don't need to, you know, hog all kinds of data or Wi-Fi to be able to post to a discussion forum. Mm-hmm. So it did kind of make me step back and reevaluate my assumptions about what do my students have access to? Mm-hmm. Um uh, am I making the right choices to empower collaboration in a way that doesn't marginalize cer- certain students? Right. And and I think that was important. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to go into the fall, stick in a discussion forum every week in every course like that. I just don't. I, I see students who typically have six to seven courses a semester just getting oh. exhausted by oh, that kind of yeah. inundation. You know, and something else that, the, you know, the uh, the teachings from, from the elders on campus has, have really solidified for me is like, listening's important too, right? An elder said, you've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Yeah. Um, but listening doesn't really get acknowledged in that, in that discussion forum formula, right? And it's meant, I think, to reproduce in class or synchronous discussions where someone can nod along and mm-hmm. make eye contact and look engaged in various ways. And that seems to count in that context, but there's no equivalent engagement in a, in a silent way right. that, that can be reproduced online. So I try to be sensitive to that. But anyway, so that it's just made me question, I think, um, you know, am I making sure, and this is something that I'm going to do with intention in the fall, uh, am I making sure that students have the, um, the resources that they need to fully engage with the course? Have I asked them and not just assumed? And, mm-hmm. and am I designing my courses in response to those needs? Right. Uh, and I think that's always an important place to start from. You know, sure. is that is that student access and, and support question? But I, I haven't been asking students if internet connectivity is an issue for them because typically they could go to campus. Well, I can't assume that come fall and maybe right. I never should have, right? Like just yeah, because the campus is available doesn't mean they can get there. Yeah. Like we've all got busy lives. So yeah, that's been a good, I think, um, you know, it just poked a hole in some assumptions that I've been making and, and caused me to rethink and, and reflect on, on some of that and maybe think about ways to allow for increased flexibility so that there's more choice. Learner choice, I always think, is a good thing. Um, so if they want to go gangbusters on a discussion thread, mm-hmm. why should I stop them? Right. For those who don't, what can I do instead that, that yeah. can support their learning and community in different ways? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to know what, what a replacement for the discussion forum would be because I'm, I'm using them, but I'm not forcing like, okay, I want to have 200 words because I, I got sick and tired of that in my own master's journey. I was just like, okay, it's really just a race to get it done. So as soon as that question was released, you know, you're reading and 
responding and, and hope to be done by Tuesday, Wednesday, because you got life, right? Yeah. And so I haven't done that with my students. I've just said, you know, I want you to, I want you to engage with the question and with each other. But, you know, if, if six out of 30 engage for one week, okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. is there, is there an alternative you think to discussion forums in this, in this new landscape that we have? Well, I mean, yes, is the answer. What would work best for a specific course is probably the, the better question, right? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in my courses, I think what I've done is I've replaced some of that, that student to student dialogue with the deep reflection kind of personal right. uh, metacognitive stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe the scales tip too far. And again, I think it comes back to my control issues about not wanting certain students to feel like they need to educate others in the course and having to right. bear that, that, you know, cognitive load. Um, but I think also just acknowledging that uh, when learners are motivated to connect with one another, they will. And maybe we just need to, to think about online courses beyond the scope of the learning management system and what you can always see and surveil and grade and, you know, word counts and all this that, stuff. How do you assess that, right? Exactly. How do you, it always how do you comes assess down that? To that? Can I put a grade to that? But, you know, I have students share with me that they got, you know, they watched a particular documentary with the roommates who aren't enrolled in my course and mm-hmm. had a, you know, a conversation about it uh, or started talking to their mom. Mums come up a lot in the course, it seems, <laughs> you know, yeah. mums, aunties, um, different parental figures. But it just seemed to be a thread last year. People were talking about their moms a lot. Maybe we we in the midst of COVID just needed that maternal kind of support or something. But, uh, you know, just acknowledging that, that learning can be informal, Mm -hmm. that learning just to achieve a certain grade on a certain assignment is um, very extrinsic and, and not really as important maybe in the context of something like truth and reconciliation as that ongoing dialogue and openness and discussion um, so I think it's important for me to make space, all mm-hmm. space for those conversations in different formats. You know, I meet synchronously with my students early in the semester. I invite them to have a one-on-one telephone conversation, mm-hmm. meet on campus in normal times, uh, do a Zoom, whatever. Um, and it's that kind of face-to-face uh, touch point, I think, that establishes meaningful connection. Sure. I could have just thrown an intro forum up and done a little post about myself with maybe a, like some sort of professional photo, but it's not the same, right? right. Uh, I mean, like I'm preaching to the choir here. Look at you you're doing a podcast, <laughs> right? It's all about conversation. Trying. Um, so Trying. I think it's just like acknowledging for students that I see the work they're doing. And that work isn't always for grades or an assignment, um, but they're, they're thinking it out, they're, they're reaching out, they're sharing, and, and to mirror some of that back to them, to say, yeah. like, this is, this is, you are doing the work that, that you've been called to do, and, um, like, thank you. Sometimes just a, a miigwech is, goes a long way, right? Sure. Are you uh, an ungrader? Are you in that philosophy or that camp? 
Um, hmm. <laughs> Depends on who from my uh, college yeah. administration is listening, right? <laughs> you know what I started doing that seems to be a kind of nice balance between, because I always sort of, like, I understand the ungrading philosophy. I al- always thought it was a bit of smoke and mirrors and mm. like what's worth a half mark versus 5%. Like, it's all just sure. sort of arbitrary, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, so what I've tried to do is just make it super transparent for students, what I'm looking for and how they'll get certain marks. So what I've done is, um, I don't call it this, I I have better language for it, but essentially what it is, is a good, better, best model. Right. So I say, this assignment's worth 15% of your final mark, uh, to pass. Here's the eight things I need to see. Mm -hmm. If you want to get a B letter grade do a couple more things. Here's what mm-hmm. they look like. Yep. If you want perfect, you're going for, for gold here, then uh, I need to see all of all of the listed items. And I also tell students, no judgment. You know what? You may always yeah. want to achieve an A, but that might not be possible given your life circumstances or the point in the semester, what's going on with other courses. So if you submit something to me that's an 8 out of 15 and you know it, um, that's okay. Like, it's yeah. okay. And, and every assignment in, in my courses now also includes a self-assessment that students complete. Okay. So they grade themselves. They tell me what they think they've earned. I ask for feedback about how to improve the assignment or, mm-hmm. you know, just a little bit of constructive criticism and anything else they'd like to tell me. And, and that's really helped, I think, uh, get us all on the same page. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really have conversations where we're arguing about marks at this point. Right. Because yeah. pretty much uh, as a rule, students grade themselves more, more uh, punitively than I would. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so, yep. you know, they gave themselves a six out of 10 and I'm like, well, hey, what about these two things? Yeah. No, I disagree. You get an eight. Um, rarely would a student reach out and argue about that, right? No, well, yeah, so, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it kind of sounds like you and I are on the same zone of proximity when it comes to ungrading. I'm very much the same. And I, I would often say to my trade students, I talk to my trade students a little bit differently than I would talk to my school of business students. Trade students, I'd, I'd be like, everyone gets 100%. And if you're happy to give, if you want to give stuff back to me, I'm happy to take it. Mm-hmm. This is what 100% looks like. And they get, they get the rubric, they get the marking sheet. They know exactly what they're being examined on. Uh, with the school of business, it's a little different. It's a little different language. It's like, okay, so, you know, I, I know everyone's busy, but you know, this, this is what 70% looks like. This is what a hundred percent looks like. Um, and there's no judgment on, on you from me, whatever. Like you want it, you want to target 70 cause you're taking four other classes and you got sister, brother, mom, dad, dog, bird, paper routes, you know, you got all this stuff going on. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. And quite honestly, that, that textbook that you bought, it's a reference book. We'll use it, but after the course, like put it on your shelf, go back to it a year from now and go, you know, there was some about what Carson said, and I can't remember that you paid for it. It's with you for the rest of your life. Like don't, don't throw it away just because you're done with the course. But anyway, mm-hmm. that's my soapbox. I'm getting on. Um, something else that I've kind of adjusted that might fit within the realm of, depending on your perspective, innovative or disruptive or, you know, insert adjective, but, uh, I, I got rid of deadlines and oh. that, that has created some animosity between myself and some colleagues who are very firm about deadlines. Uh-huh. Again, it's like you, we each have our perspectives and yeah. it's okay to, to, inv- 
invite that kind of variety in the student experience. Part of life, right? Yeah. And work with different people with different worldviews, and it's okay. But um, my thinking there was in the context of truth and rec. It's all the things that you talk about in terms of life circumstance and, you know, the the barriers that present themselves to students. But in addition to that, it's also that like psychological, uh, emotional readiness. So if we've got a heavy unit and the student just isn't feeling like now's a good time to engage with that, I don't want to force it you know but we do work within these these institutions that that do have you know pre uh prescribed schedules and deadlines and end dates and all this so so i have to work within a certain framework um but i do have the agency to basically say here's a suggested timeline it's probably in your best interest to keep up with this schedule as best as possible um because the work doesn't go away it'll compound over time and don't wait for the end of the semester when you're at your most exhausted state to try to catch up, is my advice. However, um, I'll accept anything and everything up until the final day. And um, that's really been a game changer, I think, in terms of my relationships to students. It's, it's this odd thing, though. So I say that and I repeat it and I repeat it again. And I still get these requests like emailed, you know, last minute, big apologies and, and requesting <laughs> yeah. deadline extensions. And, and it's this conditioning, right? It's, a, it's evidence of this conditioning, this it's like Ivan Illich kind of stuff, right? We've got to de-school our, our, our students. Um, and I know that it's because it's an attempt to convey respect and also to say, uh, don't interpret this lateness as my lack of commitment to this course. Like, you know, that, that, that part does exist, I think. Um, but it is uncomfortable for me because it just reinforces this hierarchy and this authority that exists between students and faculty that I think is fairly problematic to some extent. I want to be viewed as a supporter and, and not the, you know, the um, like domineering <laughs> punitive educator. That's part of my worldview though. And I think I do need to be culturally sensitive to the fact that students are coming to this, this particular course with far, you know, vast and varied, experiences and this might be sitting quite outside the norm for for what they have experienced in terms of the that dynamic between educator and learner so that's okay um but yeah the the getting rid of deadlines i i was very fearful that it would just swamp me in all this last minute grading (laughs) but you know it really hasn't if anything that distributed kind of like continuous flow of assignments coming in has made grading feel like less of a slog not more oh. it's not like boom monday night you got a hundred right. papers to mark it's yep. you know maybe you get 50 on monday and then the rest trickle in when they do so what's it to me like you got to grade it either way right yeah it, so. yeah yeah i hear you i hear you because yeah I'm, I'm gonna try that i'm gonna try that <laughs> you've, you've, you've changed my mind on that i'm gonna, hey, I'm gonna try well, that Good luck. Let, let me know how it goes. <laughs> don't don't blame me if it. <laughs> oh no 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 judgment no judgment no blame none of that no shame none of that. But uh, thanks. I'm always looking at ways to make it to to keep the course rigorous, but to make it easier for the student because I'm I'm learning more and more that um, 
that there's more value in in treating them more than fairly, right? Yeah. And I mean, I grew up in an apprenticeship system where you had to constantly prove yourself day after day after day after day. And it wasn't until even after you became a journey person that you started to garner some respect in certain regards, right? And and even with some mm-hmm. people, like it took 10 years to be in the trade before people would look at you and go, yeah, okay, I can shake your hand now and I can respect you, right? Um, sure. That part didn't change when I moved to education, mm-hmm. right? It just, it just got, it, it, I say this often that, that the, the big difference between blue collar and white collar is that blue collar, we tend to wear our hearts on our sleeves a lot more. White collar, they just hide it better, mm. right? And so when I moved to higher ed, even though surrounded by tradespeople, it was, you know, it was still there, it just looked different, smelled a little different. And then, yeah, so I'm, I'm constantly looking at ways to make things easier for my students and yet keep the rigor up. And I'm, I've been poking at the balloon of ungrading for a while now. Uh, I'm going to try it. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, stress, stress inhibits our ability to learn oh, in my sure. opinion. Yeah. And I think that's well supported enough to kind of throw mm. it out there as a as fact, but yep. um, our systems are designed to really produce all kinds of stress environments. Oh, you know? totally. Totally. It's that whole Seth Godin industrial complex education building philosophy right and it's like totally it's one of the reasons like we homeschooled our kids for the longest time like we pulled them all out when they were elementary school and that was one of the reasons why just like you know what i got a lot of i got a lot of friends in the k-12 system respect what they do all that other stuff but you know quite frankly i think there was some stuff that we could do just as well and yeah i didn't i didn't i was not a fan of the industrial complex of dropping my kids off and picking them up and i mean it's just it's just me it's just me i don't want to get myself in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) But I I mean, there's this tension, right? Because you're employed in in a post-secondary environment. There are deeply entrenched and I don't know if they're necessary or not, but they're definitely pervasive systems. Um, So finding the wiggle room within it, I think Mm -hmm. is, is, is a decolonial act, frankly. Um, Oh, I agree. Right. That word gets yep. thrown around a lot, but, um, you know, when it, when it comes to my own practice, I think for, for me, it was about how can I make the grading part of this experience, something that is enriching and, uh, invites more of a lifelong process, acknowledging that this is the first step in potentially many steps that I won't see, but it doesn't mean they don't count. Um, you know, learning is cyclical. It's not linear. All these outcomes and objectives and pre-described, like you're, this is what you shall do. Um, it just doesn't fit really in the indigenous worldviews or uh, pedagogies. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's this fascinating balance. Actually, there's a, there's a, a term for it. Uh, a Mi'kmaq elder, Albert Marshall, coined the term uh, two-eyed seeing or two-eyed seeing framework. Yeah, it's Edwaptamunk uh, is the is the Mi'kmaq word for it, and what it means is basically celebrating and and recognizing first off and celebrating the the beneficial or positive aspects of both worldviews, both the like Euro European or Canadian uh, Western worldview, but also Indigenous perspective. 
perspectives and um, trying to find the strengths in both. And so that two-eyed seeing is something that I'm really working on, I think, in, in my teaching. Because we've been indoctrinated fully into the, the colonial part of it, but what can, um, you know, these indigenous ways of, of knowing and teaching um, bring to bring to our pedagogy that can function to empower and, and recognize the strengths of our learners and kind of get away with some of the, the harms, intentional or otherwise, caused by uh, the education system. So it just doesn't fit, right, to, to be punitive with my marking um, in a course that already asks so much. Now, I also teach English, though, and that's <laughs> that. <laughs> Here we go. Dichotomy time. Oh man, decoloni uh, decolonizing APA format. It's, whew, that's a uh, that's going to take me some time. That'll, I think that'll take some work. Yeah, <laughs> that'll take some work. I always find it interesting when we throw on the words. Oh, I want to be innovative, and I want to I want to be creative in, in how we do this course. But don't touch my assessments. It's like yeah, okay, people like hello, like it's it, ah, get me all started. Anyway, um, Jess, we are we are. We, we're past the time, which wow. is good, which is good. And, and it's gone by so fast. Um, thank you for taking the time to, to be with us and share with us what's going on and what you're thinking about and what you're working on. Such important work. And, and I know that your students are getting such great value. And it sounds like you're learning a ton for yourself and, and uh, you're making a, a, a massive impact. So, so keep it up. I follow you on Twitter. You, you know that. Um, and, and, and I always appreciate what, what you put out into uh, the Twitter world. Just a few closing questions. Sure. What's your favorite band? What do you like to listen to? Like when you're, when you're done and you just want to sit down and have your favorite beverage and just want to listen to something, what do you listen to? I think um, I'm, I'm an indie person through and through. I, I like Canadian singer-songwriters for sure. Um, so if, if I'm like promote as, as far as your, your listenership <laughs> expands, I'm not sure, but someone to check out would be William Prince he has a new album out. It's called reliever. It's incredibly sad. Um, but just beautiful. And, and something he says in an interview about that album, he's kind of working through the death of his father. Um, and some other big life events there. But he said, what I did to get myself through that time, and it's kind of apparent on the record, is I borrowed from future happiness. And I thought that's just such a beautiful sentiment. Borrow from your future happiness. Like believe that it's going to get better and and leverage that power of your your future tense happy self to get you through the the kind of yucky time right now. And I think, you know, in terms of what's going on for all of us these days, that might not be a, a bad way to frame things, right? Yeah, that's a good thing to end on. That's that's awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jess. It's been a, it's been an honor and a pleasure to spend the, the time with you. Um, it's been good. Maybe we'll have you back. Oh, I'd love to. I mean, this is it's always such an honor to even be invited. Uh, an honor and a shock, usually. But uh, I really enjoyed our conversation and um, I would love to return at any time. I'm sure our paths will cross again someday, virtually or ideally in person. I'd love to see you down at the conference. But uh, until then, we got our socials, right? That's right. I should love just sitting around. Some days I'm never off my feet, but gotta love what you do, babe, for that jingle jangle. 
Cause we only get a few days Nobody makes it out of here anyway Put the shuffle in your shoes, babe That's the thing worth chasing Gotta love what you do, babe So not a day is wasted Don't wanna let a day go wasted So go ahead, be a scientist Start a band with your best friends Be the muscle with a phony list Change some oil, burn your wrist Stay home, raise a family Go teach gym overseas I'll love you for whatever it is Just don't let a day go wasted Don't wanna let a day go wasted Gotta love what you do, babe For that jingle jangle Cause we only get a few days Nobody makes it out of here anyway Well, put the shuffle in your shoes, babe That's the thing worth chasing Gotta love what you do, babe So not a day goes wasted Don't wanna let a day go wasted I like the TV way too loud I like it colder when we sleep I drive too close to the outside lane I drive you crazy when I breathe I think I'm ready for a new life Think I'm ready for a beautiful wife Think I'm done with fighting Cause it's just time we're wasting 